it was okay to wear flannel since we're below 80. <laughs> she, said, she said it was okay. We're, we're quickly help moving out of summer into, into the fall. But it's good to be with you this morning. It's my privilege to open up God's word for you this morning. But before we get there, how many of you have heard of the Leaning Tower of Pisa? How many of you have heard of the Leaning Tower of South Padre Island? Not as many of you. Well, it was this 31-story skyscraper in Texas near the Mexican border, and it had a spectacular view of the ocean. But unfortunately, it was torn down uh, before it was ever completed. You know, they were so close, but yet so far from what the owners hoped for. You know, it was going to be the top-of-the-line amenities in every, uh, in every condo. It would, have been, uh, it would have been a destination hotel and condo. Right, we're talking like $2 million per unit. And I say would have been because in 2008, developers noticed cracks in the columns supporting the parking garage. And the official explanation was that the parking garage and the tower had been incorrectly attached where they weren't supposed to be attached. But the honest answer after a forensic investigation was that they had not prepared the foundation properly for the construction. And so in 2009, it was demolished. And at the time, it was the tallest controlled demolition in the world. Concrete and steel brought down. Right? Foundation set the tone for the rest of the house. Right? What you build upon will prove the longevity of the structure. Right? Your base defines the success of a project. Right? We all know that. Now, how else can I say it? Right? Building on the wrong foundation can be catastrophic. And that's exactly what we're going to learn this morning as we start over the next month our church series. Over the last two years uh, with COVID and you know, various hardships within the church, you know, it's, the, the, the church has been squeezed. And I'm not sure that everything that's come out has been pleasant. Right? Over the next month, we're going to be taking, uh, going back, back to the basics, going back to the basics or the foundations of what church is. Today, we're going to be looking at the foundation of who builds the church. Next week, we're going to be looking at church unity. And then we'll look at the week after that at church fellowship. And then ending our series, we're going to, we're going to look at the importance of church membership. So plan to join us as you, as you think about the next four weeks. Plan to join us as we study you know, what the church is, who builds it, how does it grow, how does it function, how are, what are we to be doing as members of a church. And if we understand those elements as we go through the next couple weeks, as we, if we understand those elements, then when times get hard or when we're tempted to give up or when we're annoyed with one of our brothers or sisters, you can step back and you can remind yourself what God's doing here at Church of the Canyons and then what he's doing with the church globally. All right? As elders here at church, you know, our goal in this series is to remind us of the foundation of everything that we do here at church. The foundation is so central and everything rests upon it. I cannot overstate it enough. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up. Matthew chapter 16. And it's a profound, profound text. We'll start in verse 13. Arguably, this is the passage that's ground zero for all of the New Testament. 
Now, any time when you consider uh, the theology of church or uh, any um, ecclesiology, you ought to begin with this passage in particular. And so really, it's a predictable place to start, right? But it's a necessary place to begin. It's a mountain peak. It's a, it's a, um, yeah, it's a, it's a passage where the church should come back to over and over again as we consider our founding charter. So follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. We'll end at verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the king's keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we bow this morning in worship of you, and we thank you for your word, which is holy and true and fully inspired, fully inerrant, fully authoritative over our lives. Father, as we pray this morning, as we engage this passage together, that you would speak to us words that are fresh, words that are instructive to us, words that are helpful as we really think about our lives and our ministries and the ministry here at Church of the Canyons. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. As we come to this passage this morning, you know, we want to think about it as it relates to our own context here in the first, uh, 21st century, but we have to consider the context of the, the book of Matthew, right? As we think about the church today in general and where the church situates itself, I think it's right to say that the church finds itself in a bit of a crisis. And it's cliche. I know it's, you know, we have, we have crises everywhere. We hear about crisis all around us and we don't use that word too flippantly, but I think it's fair to say, and I think it's safe to say, that the church ministering in 2022 is in some sort of external crisis. We turn on the news and we see terrorism, threatening pathogens, political corruption. We see cultural crises all around us. Right? Culture continues to ne- ne- negotiate again and again and again what it means to be married, what it means to be male, what it means to be female what it means to have factual information or misinformation. There are cultural pressures that relates to religious liberty and how we're even to exist in this culture of 2022. So we minister in a culture that's a challenge for the church. And I'm speaking broadly here about the evangelical church, but I think we see very little growth, if any. Many churches are stagnant and pulpits are weak. Worldliness has crept into the church, and most churches practice a meaningless form of church membership, where there's no really, really real distinction between those who are members and those who are not. And more, there's a, there's a decline of, of young men aspiring to pastoral ministry, and there's an apathy towards the church. But in Matthew chapter 16, 
Our passage this morning, Jesus brings a tone of confidence, especially as it relates to five words. Five words, and they're the linchpin of this whole passage, and you'll see them in verse 18. Look at it. I will build my church. Five words that should inspire confidence in us as believers. I will build my church. These five words in this entire passage is a promise that the church claims. It's a promise that that the church ought to be built upon. It's the foundation on which the church should work as members promise to serve faithfully into the coming years. So let's study our passage this morning and see what Jesus is telling us. As we come to the book uh, of Matthew, we we arrive here in chapter 16. There's this heightened sense and heightened attention upon Jesus, on his miracles, on his teachings, on his claims. And with each chapter, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're, they're seeking to set a trap for Jesus. They're continuing to, to press their claims and accusations against him for his forthright statements that he is divine. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 1, you can look at it. That's where the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they come to him and they, they want a sign from Jesus. And we're told in verse 1 that the Pharisees and Sadducees, they came up and they tested Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign. And Jesus tells them in chapter 16, verse 4, it's an evil and adulterous generation that it seeks after a sign. And the sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah. And you see, that's just a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and three days in the tomb and then his resurrection. See, everyone at that time wanted a sign. They wanted Jesus to demonstrate that he was God's son. And the irony is, that he had given them a sign. Every, every miracle, every sermon, every act that Jesus did was an ongoing testimony that he was God's son, thus making himself equal with God. And in fact, the Gospel of John, if you read that, if you read it carefully, you'll see that again and again and again, this claim where Jesus would state his deity and then they would seek to arrest him and then kill him for claiming that. And so as you come to uh, verse 13 in chapter 16, it seems like this really abrupt shift, almost a non sequitur that Jesus goes from teaching about uh, having a sign to then teaching upon the church. Look at verse 13. Jesus and his disciples, they're in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee and where the, the climate was comfortable, similar to just outside today. And it, it was a place that uh, Jesus went to reflect with his disciples on his ministry. They're at the headwaters of the Jordan River that flows north to south. They're reflecting on ministry together. And now Jesus gives one of the greatest teachings on the church. And if you're taking no- notes this morning, I want, I want you to see four major movements in our passage. And with each movement, I want you to ask yourself, what should we do with this? You have to answer the question, so What? So what am I to do with this? We'll start with the first movement. The first movement comes in in verses 13 through 17. This is number one in your notes. We must embrace the church's confession. We must embrace the church's confession. Most people don't realize, but the church is at heart a theological entity. right? At its heart, at its core, the church is doctrinal. 
In fact, the promise of Jesus' church here, that I will build my church, is given specifically based on the confession of who Jesus Christ is. Notice in verse 13, we're, we're now told that Jesus is coming into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he's asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so for, verse 13 is almost this moment of truth And the disciples, for two and a half years, they've been following him. They've been hearing him teaching. They've witnessed his miracles. They've observed Jesus in all his glory. Yet now, Jesus begins to narrow the question down to his own identity. Who is Jesus? And the answer to that question cannot be of greater consequence. You see, the church rises or falls based on the answer to that question. What you think about Christ. Believers' fate rises or falls on what they believe about Christ. And so in verse 14, the disciples give an opinion poll. Some say John the Baptist. Others Elijah. But still others Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. And this is really interesting, right? Because at this time, John the Baptist, he's already been beheaded. But some of the Jews thought that Jesus may have been John the Baptist reincarnated. Others, they were saying Elijah. Elijah, he was uh, considered to be like the premier Old Testament prophet. He was to come again, but we know that John the Baptist is the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, not Christ. Others were saying it's Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah, he was known as the weeping prophet. And when people saw Jesus' burden for the loss, they thought, you know what? This could be Jeremiah. Right? After all, who, who could blame him, right? Jesus is known as the man of sorrows. And some people, maybe they saw Jesus as some sort of mixture of Elijah. Maybe it's a mixture of Elijah and Jeremiah. Maybe he's just one of the prophets. I don't know who it is, but maybe he's a prophet. At the very least, the crowds, they, they recognize by this testimony, they recognize that something is unique about Jesus. Something sets him apart. Something's different. And what's interesting about the list that they say, it's all complimentary, right? It's all positive. These are the who's who of prophets, right? It's a list of elite names. They're the front runners of Jewish popularity and their heroes, right? They would have been on the top 10 list. And it's the best that the crowds have to offer. You see, people were watching and they had to categorize Jesus, this man who came teaching and healing unlike any other one of the prophets, And their best assessment, the crowds, their best assessment, the public opinion was to rank them just up with with some of the Jewish prophets. You know, when you uh, approach Easter or Christmas, if you ever noticed uh, television shows or television documentaries looking to answer the question of who is the historical Jesus? Who is it? And it's always interesting to watch, but it's also so frustrating because these investigative reporters, they go and talk to Ivy League divinity school professors and, and they always fall short. Right? They say they, they attribute to Jesus the good teaching. You know, he's some great teacher or some nice moral guy. And the same, they, but they just fall short on classifying Jesus as the son of God. And so notice in verse 15, Jesus narrows the conversation And he focuses it not from the crowds, but he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And you see, this is the heart of the issue this morning. 
I know historically here at Church of the Canyons, we've taught on who Jesus is. But we can't just cruise by this verse without asking the question again, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And how you answer that question determines everything about your eternal destiny. It determines everything about your spiritual life. It determines everything about your basic worldview. It determines everything about how you lead your life. It determines how you organize your family. It determines how you view yourself as a participant of Church of the Canyons. And Jesus, he narrows it down. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, bless his heart, Peter, he has the spiritual gift of foot and mouth. But we see in verse 16, he gets it right here. Read it. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one that the prophets spoke of. You are the chosen one. You are the one that humanity longs for. You are the Christ. You see, from childhood, every Jewish boy and girl knew and they were taught to look for the Messiah. They were looking for this one and they had been waiting for generations and generations. And of course, in this moment, especially they were looking because they wanted to be freed from the Roman oppression politically. They wanted a political savior. But they got way, way more than that. For the Jews, there had been this pent-up demand and this pent-up expectation for the Messiah to come. And now Peter, he's announcing, you are the one we've waited for. You are the son of God. Listen, you don't have to have a seminary degree to go to heaven. You don't even need a Bible college degree to go to heaven. You don't even have to be a robust disciple to go to heaven, right? Meaning like, you don't need to be like on the cutting edge of theology, but you must be right about who Jesus is. You must be right. Because that will have an impact on how you live. And so Peter's confession has been the church's understanding and the confession for centuries following this confession in verse uh, 16. Right? The Apostles' Creed. Let me, let me read it. This, the Apostles' Creed was crafted about 70 years after Jesus' ascension. And this is what it states. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his holy Son, our Lord. And about 250 years later, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, being of one substance with the Father. And then the Westminster Confession, 1,300 years after that, affirms that Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. But above creeds and testimonies and confessions, scripture Scripture is superior and it's clear that Jesus is God. It shows us over and over again. John chapter 14, verse 8 and 9, it's so beautiful. Philip, he comes to Jesus and says, Lord, show me the Father. What does Jesus say? Have I been with you so long and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who's seen me has seen the Father. 
how can you say, show me the Father? Jesus embodies all that the Father embodies. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Later in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, he tells us that in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory as one of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. And by every discernible aspect, Jesus is God. And in scripture, we're, we're told that Jesus is the one who creates. He sustains. He forgives. He raises the dead. He judges. He sends the Holy Spirit. He receives worship from all people and even angels. Who else can do that but God? And by Jesus' attributes, he demonstrates that he's, he's, he's omnipotent and he's omniscient, all-powerful and all-knowing. By his names, he receives and accepts the name of Lord and God. By his equality, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you weren't sure before, church, be sure today, Jesus is God. This is the confession that the church must embrace. And now notice, in verse 17, this is a footnote on this whole passage. Note, Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And what are we to make of verse 17? It's a subtle, clear, but subtle reminder that every spiritual insight, including conversion, comes at the initiation and work of our sovereign God. We're often hard on Peter because he's wrong a lot. And doubtlessly, he would have gotten it wrong here if the Father hadn't revealed it to him. Peter made this statement based upon the movement of the Lord and the Holy Spirit in his life. It was the Father who revealed this to Peter. Again, that's just a footnote to our passage, but it's important to consider this morning. Right? Every spiritual insight, including our conversion, comes by the gracious act of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. That should cause us, you know, how do we, how do we view conversion? You know, I think oftentimes, I, 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 I do this too. You know, I always think maybe, you know, there, there's people in this world that would be so good for the church if God just saved them, right? Because of their popularity or their money or their influence or their platforms that they have. You know, it, it could be useful for the kingdom. But conversion is not just taking someone and getting them to recite a prayer, Conversion is not just taking a class. Conversion is not just making a donation to the church. Conversion is a work of regeneration in the heart in the concert with repentance and faith. Because if conversion was merely just getting someone, a man or a woman, to recite a phrase or recite a prayer, then we could save the whole world pretty quickly. But verse 17 reminds us that it's the work of illumination. That's the Spirit's work. It's, the, it's God's work. It's the Father's work. I know that was a quick detour, but Jesus spoke the words, and so we have to address them. 
Now move with me to chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 18, first part of it, and we'll see our second movement, our second exhortation from the text this morning. Number two, we must submit to the church's owner. We must submit to the church's owner. One person and one person alone owns the church and his name is Jesus. You know, I've been to pastors conferences where I've been asked, you know, how big is your church? You know, what's your church like? What, you know, what ministries do you run at your church? You know, COC, this might feel like your church. You might think that the elders own this church. You may think that this church belongs to us. But that's nonsense. It's not even your church. It's not my church. It's not our church. Yes, Jesus demonstrates his, and exercises his authority through the, his word and by leadership and by his spirit through pastors and elders and ultimately through the congregation. But Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the founder. Jesus is the proprietor. Jesus is the keeper. He's the purchaser. And he's the owner of his church. Notice in verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now when most people read verse 18, there's a temptation to just kind of run to the words, will build, right? He will build and will build, those two words are important and we'll get to that in a moment. But before we get to that, I'm struck by the I and the my. In that sentence, I and my, the possession, I will build my church. Before we get to that, let's notice in the first part of verse 18, I say to you, you are Peter and upon this rock. What is this rock? What is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church? While our Roman Catholic neighbors, of course, believe this is a statement from Christ, that they believe that Christ will build his church upon Peter, and, and it's, it's a demonstration of, of some sort of argument for the papacy uh, for the years to come, uh, that, that we do not believe that. We, we have to see here, and we have to, see, we have to figure out, what is this rock? Jesus says here, Peter, and it's been noted by others that the word translated there is Petros. Translated means a small stone or a pebble. And upon this rock, Petra, this mountain, this boulder, this confession, I will build my church. And actually, I don't think that's quite what Jesus is getting at here either. I believe that Jesus is saying, upon this confession, and upon the teaching of the apostles, I will build my church. To just break it down, to say it in a concise sentence, Jesus will build his church on the truth. Jesus will build his church on the truth. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, we're told that we are being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. And in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, the early church gave themselves to the teaching of the apostles. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, we're told that no one can lay a foundation other than which was laid, which is Christ Jesus. The foundation of the church then is God-given revelation and Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Indeed, you hear the, the hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. That's it. And so I believe that Jesus is promising that he will build his church and his church will be built upon the truth. 
and we see from the confessional, this confessional statement of Peter that he is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And now that's fleshed out by the apostles teaching through the New Testament and the word of God as a whole, right? I will build my church. So how can Jesus claim the church as his own? What gives him the right to do that? Well, if you think about it and follow through the New Testament, everything that we see about the church is connected to Christ and the Gospels. What do we see? As we go through scripture, we see Jesus declaring his intent to build the church. We see Jesus dying on the cross for the church. And as we come to the book of Acts, you see at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that that, that the church is being built upon his gospel. And it's spreading all throughout the Mediterranean. And then we move through the New Testament and we see that Jesus specifically rose for the church. And as epistles are starting to be written, we see them that, that, uh, that they're instructing the church how to con- conduct ministry under the lordship of Christ. And we see at the book of Revelation that the, this promise that Christ will return for his church. And Jesus will judge his church and he'll judge all men. And in, in, in the beginning part of Revelation, we see seven letters written to seven churches. And that Jesus, he claims to own them and oversee them and hold them in his right hand. And he holds the messengers and he walks among the lampstands, intimately related, intimately close with his church. So if Jesus owns his church, then how does he carry out that ownership? Why is this so important? He, does, he, he carries out his ownership through his word and through the elders of the church. And it's important because if we understand who owns the church, then that in turn should frame everything else that we think about in, in context of the church. Right? If he owns the church, that means that he determines how it's organized. He determines how the church should minister. He's the one who determines how church should conduct their worship services. He determines everything about the church's life and ministry. And it's all spelled out in the New Testament. Right? For instance, have you ever thought about why and what we do on a Sunday morning? Why do we do what we do? And I would argue... That the New Testament clearly lays out what we are to do on a Sunday morning. It's four things. It's to preach the word. To read scriptures. To sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And to offer prayers together for God's people. Have we done all that today? Yeah. We're doing it. And why these four things? Because that's what uh, the New Testament has shown us. And both prescriptively and descriptively commands and what we saw the early church do. So that's what we're to do on a Sunday morning. And then as you move beyond uh, the worship service to basic ministry within the church, we, 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 get, we get the answers to, to how we evangelize, which missionaries do we send, um, which, which ministries we conduct or what we carry on. It's all informed by the New Testament. And so follow the logic. If if Jesus owns the church, and if Jesus is going to build his church, then we'd better be doing exactly what he prescribed us to do. But, on the other hand, if the church is our property, and it's our own possession, and it's up to us to build it, 
then we better get really entrepreneurial and really creative and hire the most charismatic, handsome, perfect, dynamic, motivational speaker that you've ever seen to be our pastor because we could go out of business anytime. But it's not ours, right? We see how silly that is. But sometimes we get tempted to build the church our own way. If only we had an Awana program. If only we had a coffee shop. If only we had a taco night for every new visitor we had. If only we had a bookstore. But of course, this is Jesus' church. And he's in charge of how it runs. Amen? Amen? Number three. Notice in the second half of verse 18... The third movement of this passage, the third exhortation that I want to bring this morning is that we must labor for the church with confidence. We must labor for the church with confidence. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now just let each one of those words sink in. I will build my church. 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 I, not Peter, not Gabriel, not Paul, not the elders, not the Pope. Jesus is the one who builds. I will build my church. Not I hope to, not if things go right, not if the church crafts its message to be acceptable to pop culture. I will build my church. I will build my church. I love the activity here, the industry. Not I will allow my church to be built, not I will watch my church being built, not well, I will root for the church to be built. No, I will build. There's an activity to this phrase. I will build my church. Not your church. Not their church. Not the church. Not our church. I will build my church. I will build my church. He won't build a subgroup of the church. Not a parachurch organization. The church is God's chosen vessel. That's the thing he'll build. And any ministry apart from a local church ought to be a ministry that is seeking to strengthen and to serve and build the congregation of a local church. So, we labor with confidence. Those five words should stir in you an unbreakable confidence. We labor as sisters and brothers in Christ with the church in confidence, knowing that Jesus is building the church. So much so that he says the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What's he talking about here? Jesus is referring to death. That is the abode of the dead. Jesus is saying that even death itself will not prevail over the church. That means the death of great preachers, the death of great saints, even his own death would not stop him from building the church. Because Jesus gained triumph over death. And with his own resurrection, he would have the ultimate testimony of authority and power over his church and this truth of his promise. Church of the Canyons, I want to encourage you this morning. As you turn on the news, read the paper, check social media, it feels like everything 
is just collapsing in on us. You know, I'm talking about spirit-filled Christians who seemingly live in a country that's increasingly unfamiliar to us. We have to remember that our citizenship is not on this earth. We have a heavenly citizenship. Our identity is first and foremost an identity rooted in Christ and the local church. Not in a national affiliation or even a local affiliation, but in the body of Christ. That is who we are. And that is a glorious reality. Listen, I will vote in November. As a responsible citizen should. But I promise you, I do not get shaken much these days by what's going on in the political arena. Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green Party, I don't find any hope in them. Why? Because I know that this entity, this institution, the church, the body that I am a part of, first and foremost, is destined to succeed. That's as political as I'll get from this pulpit. (laughs) My only point here is there's nothing lasting in this country, on this earth, that Christ has not died for. Christ died for the church. And we now as believers are just aliens passing through, awaiting heaven, but on earth for now. So what is Jesus saying in our passage? How does Christ build his church? In some ways, this this passage is is one of the most abused or misused verses in all the Bible. Because every church out there has to, you know, sought to marry this verse with their own particular location, never thinking that God might have different plans with that piece of property. And we all know church buildings that are boarded up and abandoned. I I looked at uh, one real estate site and there's like 500 churches for sale right now. You go out and buy. There are a couple different ways we have to understand this promise. First and foremost, throughout history, 2,000 years of church history, and then as we think about history future, Christ's church will continue to flourish. Christ's church will continue to flourish. There have been many errors, if you look back through church history, where it was dark and where the witness of the church had been... um, it was just maybe just a sliver of light. And other times where the witness of the church was uh, glorious, marked by major illumination. And throughout church history, no matter what season you're in, high or low, Christ has always had a remnant. Christ has his own people. And as we think of ourselves more locally in congregations. This is not a promise that should promote passivity in us or laziness or lack of evangelism or lack of creativity or being unassertive. Absolutely not. It's a promise that the Lord is building his church globally and universally and the church will triumph. But I do believe that it's a promise here at Church of the Canyons. It's for us as well. This promise helps us as we minister with pure hearts and faithfulness to scriptures, committed to sound doctrine, prayerfully preaching the word and serving. And we know as we labor, Christ labors with us. And so how does he ultimately build his church? Through the preaching of the cross, through the preaching of the gospel, Through the preaching of the message of Jesus Christ. Not just from this pulpit, but it's you preaching it to your neighbors. 
to your gardeners, to your barber, to your family members. We must be preaching Christ, his cross, and his gospel. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 1, they wanted a sign. And everyone wants a sign these days, right? And Jesus finally said, even if one raised from the dead, you still wouldn't believe. A sign would not, and does not, and could not build the church. Jesus builds his church on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we labor with confidence, knowing we don't have to keep up with the Joneses. And our church's message, our church's facilities, and our church ministries is based on this. We will preach Christ and him crucified. That's it. And as we do that, Christ will build his church. Number four. There's a fourth movement in our passage this morning I'd like you to see in verse 19. And it's this. We must contend for the church's purity. We must contend for the church's purity. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does this mean? This verse has been the subject of confusion over the years. And it deserves our our careful attention here this morning. Jesus' main point in this verse is that he cares about the purity of the church. So we take Matthew 16 and pair it with Matthew 18 on church discipline that's fleshed out in 1 Corinthians We pair them all together and we see that Jesus cares about the purity of every local congregation, of every flock. Binding and loosening here refers to binding someone in their sins or loosening them from their sins. Again, we understand this passage in concert with Matthew 18. And the point is that the the elders of the church, they don't have some mystical power like to bind or loose someone. Rather, that, that authority is based on scripture. Elders find any authority, it only comes from God's word. As elders of the church, we have no authority apart from scripture. Through understanding the scriptures, through, through uh, seeking and exercising wise counsel, we can recognize when, uh, when we are called upon to acknowledge and to announce people's relationship with their sin. Right? If a person is unrepentant of their sin, then we have, on the authority of scripture, the ability, and indeed the charge... To announce them bound in their sin and putting them out of the church because they will not repent of their sin. And when they do repent, then we can bring them back into the church or freeing them or loosening them from their sin. This is not some tool that we exercise mystically, but rather it's as an acknowledgement and a declaration of what is taking place in the life of a person and in the life of the local church itself. Do you understand that Christ cares about the purity of his local church? See, the collective witness of any local church, of any congregation, is a derivative of the individual witnesses and the purity of the people within that church. And to be honest, the church historically has been a lot better than the the modern church at practicing meaningful church membership. And so what does meaningful church membership even mean? It means that the people who are members of a church actually act like members of the church. They show up, they give, they serve, they lead their lives and their families in a way that reflects the glory of Christ. All novel ideas, right? 
meaningful church membership basically prevents you from having a 10,000 member roster and only having 1,000 people show up on a Sunday morning. It means that you have have basically the same number of members that you have show up on a Sunday morning. Because members of a church are following Christ. And they indeed understand themselves as being a part of this body. The church isn't some place where you just leave your membership or check your membership at. Church is a place where you're a part of. It's a family. And specifically, as it relates to verse 19, the call is for the people of God to conduct their lives in a way that does not undermine the credibility of the church. Because every time, every single time a believer or a member of a church goes off the reservation, morally or doctrinally, God's glory is tainted. It's tainted in that congregation and also uh, in the community that's witnessing us. We are to contend for the purity of the church. Well, COC, that is the church. And this is the church triumphant. This is the church that we're called to serve. And let me pull it together with just a, a few points of application for us as we go on with our week. Number one, remember your citizenship. Remember your citizenship is in heaven in the future, but your citizenship is in the church for now. Secondly, remember, we win in the end. Terrorism, socialism, totalitarianism, any form of persecution that we may exact in this present age, it doesn't matter. We will ultimately win. We will triumph in Christ. And we must always be kindling that eschatological hope in our lives. Number three, reflect on the glory of God in his church. Reflect and protect the glory of God in the church, primarily by maintaining the church's purity. Number four, be a man or a woman that's for the church. This is what Christ has promised to build. It's his church, and he promises to build it. And then, as you think of your own relationship with this church, don't think of your primary connection just to a men's Bible study or a women's Bible study or a youth group or college ministry. Understand that your primary relationship is with the church body collectively. See, we need each other. I need the seasoned widow who has been faithful to lead Bible studies. I need the fresh, empty nesters who sent their last kid to college and raised their kids in the Lord. I need other young families who are discipling their kids to walk well with the Lord. I need college kids coming for their education with a fresh faith to pursue their careers. I need the junior high and high schoolers who are in the trenches every single day being persecuted for their faith. I need the infants and the toddlers to not forget about God's blessings on the family. And you know what? You need them too. You need everyone in this church. Church is a body. And we must lean into this congregation collectively and understand that what our primary identity is and that is being found in Christ. So that is the church. That's the church's foundation, and that is the church triumphant. Let's pray. God, we give you the praise. Thank you so much for sacrificing 
for shedding your own blood for the church. God, we look forward to the day where we're going to be at that wedding feast where your church and Christ will be made one. We'll be with you face to face. We look forward to that day. And as we work here as aliens passing through, don't let us forget our citizenship is in heaven. Thank you for the church. Thank you for each member here at Church of the Canyons. God, so many other churches are even meeting as, as we speak. God, thank you for your work globally. You will build your church. Let us 